Back in 1946, when David Lean's Brief Encounter opened in the US, Billy Wilder was very taken by the moment Dr. Alec Harvey asked to borrow his friend's flat so he could take a married woman there for a secret tryst. Wilder took that single scene and reimagined it from the perspective of the friend and spun it into the apartment. Something similar happened to Akira Kurosawa's 1958 adventure, The Hidden Fortress. Very taken by the leads, Tahe and Matashichi, and their worm's eye view of royal families at war, for his Star Wars saga, George Lucas transformed them into the support roles of War 2 D2 and C3PO. So, what if someone were to take Carol Reed's masterpiece, The Third Man, and look at it from an angle different from the mystery Graham Greene created about Holly Martin's investigating the accidental death of his friend, Harry Lyme? Well, British broadcaster Harry Allen Towers sort of did that in 1951, when, two years after The Third Man won first prize at the Cannes Film Festival, he resurrected Lyme's character. That was the shot that killed Harry Lyme. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna. As those of you know who saw the movie The Third Man. Yes, that was the end of Harry Lyme. But it was not the beginning. Harry Lyme had many lives. And I can recount all of them. How do I know? It's very simple. Because my name is Harry Lyme. Towers had discovered that while the sequel rights to Green's script were all tied up, the copyright on the actual character of Harry Lyme was not. And so, Towers spun 52 half-hour radio shows that pitched Lyme into new adventures in such far-flung places as Budapest, Mexico City, Tangiers, New York and the Panama Canal. Although the film had Lyme as a drug-dealing racketeer, Orson Welles portrayed him as a charming rogue. And so, Towers' radio show brought Lyme up from the sewers washed him down and presented him as little more than a rascal. So what if we're to look at the third man from the perspective of Anna Schmidt, the Czechoslovakian refugee living in Vienna, wanted by the Soviet authorities for repatriation, who, through desperation, falls for the darkly persuasive Harry Lyme. Sooner or later, one way or another, crime enters the scene of every human story, whether it's some ordinary little mug telling a lot of other ordinary little mugs how he once rubbed elbows with Jack the Ripper, or... Jack himself, not that I approve of Jack. Murder is usually a mistake and always messy. Personally, I never indulge. Come to think of it, the only man I ever killed was myself. It was in Paris a few years ago. It wasn't so much murder as a matter of convenience. Played with superb melancholy by Alida Valley, Anna barely makes ends meet, living off the gifts thrown to her whenever she performs on stage. Now, for the purpose of a film made in 1949, what Anna performs is comedy, and the stage is definitely theatre. Certainly not a burlesque review in some dingy basement. But her luck changes when she meets Harry, an entrepreneur who quickly arranges for her a false passport. But any sense of security is shattered when Harry is killed in a road accident. Then, straight after the funeral, Anna is unexpectedly visited by Holly Martins, an old associate of Harry's. Played straight by Joseph Cotton, Holly wants to know how Harry died. But Anna just wants to mourn the sudden loss of her lover. He never grew up. The world grew up around him, that's all. And buried him. Anna, you'll fall in love again. Don't you see, I don't want to. I don't ever want to. Come on out and have a drink. Why did you say that? Seemed like a good idea. It's just what he has to say. Snooping around, 
Polly soon suspects Harry didn't die in an accident. He was killed. Upsetting an already distressed Anna even further, Holly's claims then put her under investigation from the police, who soon haul her in for questioning. What did she know about Harry's racket of selling penicillin on the black market? Protesting her innocence, she is then told that Harry is alive. He faked his death. Could you rotate the plot of the third man and tell it from Anna's point of view? Although you could never describe Anna as the story's protagonist, in a way, the film already tells the story from her perspective. Not in terms of narrative per se, but you can hear her heartbeat on the soundtrack. Anton Karras' score begins with a light-hearted tone to mark Holly's arrival in Vienna. But listen carefully to the music cue to mark the moment he learns that his old friend has died. Corvin, Mr. Limes, an accident, knocked over by a car. Yes, nothing. Then, as Holly arrives at the cemetery, the jocular tone to the music resumes. Hardly appropriate for a funeral, but it is to reflect Holly's character. No, it is only when we see Anna standing by the grave that the tone shifts. Clearly, it's a leitmotif. But as the story develops, Anna's melancholia seeps across the story, so that by the final act, even the scenes where she is not present, we hear the same elegy. During the studio era, movie soundtracks came with full orchestras. So, given that the story takes place in Vienna, a city associated with the likes of Schubert, Beethoven, Mozart, and of course the Strauss dynasty, it would have been easy for Reed to wash the images with a classical score, a romantic concerto, or a schmaltzy waltz. But the inspired switch came when the third man's editor, Oswald Hafenrichter, suggested Karras and his zither. And with that one stroke, the mystery was cloaked in mourning. This is the city of the dead. It begins with a funeral, and investigating the underworld of Vienna's black market, it then enters the sewers, before finally returning to the same cemetery. The third man began life when Hungarian-born producer Alexander Korda commissioned Green to write a script covering international espionage, racketeering and betrayal. While it is well known that Green had worked with Britain's secret intelligence service, which later became MI6, what is less well known is that Corda had been an agent as well, using his company London Films as cover for British spies working as screenwriters and researchers across Europe. But that was before the war. In 1948, with Nazi fugitives still hiding in near plain sight, and the Cold War threatened to sever Berlin from the rest of Europe, it was feared that Vienna could be next. So, Korda sent Green to the Austrian capital. 
to come up with a story? Either way, for two long weeks, Green trolled the streets, hotels, bars and cabarets, and the only idea he had was an old one. Something he had jotted down some 20 years earlier on the flap of an envelope, and read here on the Blu-ray Special Edition by John Hurt. I had paid my last farewell to Harry a week ago when his coffin was lowered into the frozen February ground. So it was with incredulity that I saw him pass by without a sign of recognition amongst a host of strangers in the Strand. As inciting incidents go, that is a very intriguing hook. But in actual fact, two earlier films, Gilda from 1946, and The Mask of Demetrius from 1944 both do something similar. I've already told you I'm interested in anyone that's interested in Demetrius. Oh, what on earth is your great interest in Demetrius? Money? He had none. I saw his body at the mortuary, but they're certain he was... What's the matter? Did I understand you to say that you actually saw the body of Demetrius in the mortuary? While The Mask of Demetrius was set in various European cities, Istanbul, Sofia, Zagreb and Paris, and most of Gilda takes place in Buenos Aires, neither of them were filmed on location. Then it was standard practice for productions to be filmed on a studio backlot. But it was felt that the third man would benefit from filming in Vienna itself, using the city's real bombed out streets as the location. Hmm. But whoever was responsible for the suggestion, the decision links the third man to the neorealist movement that had sprung up in Italy straight after the war. Roberto Rossellini's Rome Open City, Lucchino Visconti's La Terra Trema, and Vittorio De Sica's Bicycle Thieves. But rather than presenting the third man in the same neorealist manner, cinematographer Robert Krasker went the expressionist route. That was a style that had flourished in Germany from 1919 through to the early 30s. In such films as Robert Wiener's The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, F.W. Murnau's The Last Laugh, and Fritz Lang's The Testament of Dr. Mabuse. Their innovative lighting and set design conveyed an atmosphere of instability, dread and urban alienation, all of which accounts for the shadows that race through the third man, across the cobblestones and along the walls of the deep alleys. Compounding that, Krasker, who would earn an Oscar for his work, then placed his camera at a canted angle, or Dutch tilt, presenting a world that, despite the war having ended, is still morally off balance. And as the story wears on, that style makes the film resemble a ghost story, if not a horror. As created by Krasker, the shadows, especially the ones cast by Harry, exaggerate and distort the human shape to such a degree that it appears the shadow is Harry's doppelganger, a Mr. Hyde to his Dr. Jekyll. There's no proof against me, besides you. I should be pretty easy to get rid of. Pretty easy. Wouldn't be too sure. I carry a gun. Don't think they'd look for a bullet wound after you hit that ground. In a film that enjoys more than its fair share of striking images, for me, the most telling and profound arrives just before the climax. Having barely evaded capture, and with Holly and Sergeant Calloway in hot pursuit, Harry has slipped down into the sewers to make his final escape but now he is cornered. He finds a winding stairs leading back up to the street, only to discover it is sealed shut. As he frantically tries to force open the grill, Krasker positions his camera on the cobblestones above, so we see Harry's fingers reaching up through the grate. 
once so powerful, now so unexpectedly vulnerable, Harry Lyme is helpless. And as the wind moans across the square, his fingers seem to sway silently back and forth, as if clusters of wild flowers on a meadow. It's an oddly pathetic image, because suddenly it generates a curious sense of pity. But not pity for Harry. For me, the reason why the image works more than any other in the film is because it holds other meanings. It's not really Harry's fingers we are seeing, quite literally because the fingers were actually those of Carol Reed, doubling for the absent Orson Welles. No, the fingers are visual echo, an epitaph of Lyme's victims, the thousands of children who died as a result of his vicious business, their upstretched arms crying out in agony to the nurses for help. But there is yet more to the image, because, extending from there, we can think of the hundreds of thousands of resistance and underground fighters across Europe who courageously battled against the Nazis. And then, of course, the millions of Holocaust victims struggling for clean air as the Zyklon canisters were opened and sprinkled down the chutes into the death chambers. Beyond the film's score, nowhere near enough attention is paid to the sounds designed by John Cox. Besides working in other films, also adapted from works by Graham Greene, The Fallen Idol and Our Man in Havana, both of which were directed by Carol Reed, Cox supervises sound design on several David Lean films. The Sound Barrier, Hobson's Choice, Summertime, The Bridge on the River Kwai, and in 1962, Lawrence of Arabia, for which Cox received an Oscar. Yes, Freddie Young's cinematography captures a great expanse of the desert, but for me, Cox's deadening sound conveys its quiet isolation. Back down in the sewers, Holly is no longer chasing Harry's shadow, but trying to trace him, but filtering out the echoes to find his voice. Although Wells only worked in the film for 10 days, as arranged by John Cox, the vast, cavernous and expressive soundscape recalls to mind the intricate sound designs Wells implemented on Citizen Kane. Remember, Wells himself had worked for years in radio, so he knew more than a thing or two about telling a story through sound. The directors of the Thatcher Memorial Library have asked me to remind you again, Mr. Thompson, yes. of the conditions under which you may inspect certain portions of Mr. Thatcher's unpublished memoirs. I yes, Jennings. I bring him right in. All I want under to know. Under no circumstances, are direct quotations from his manuscript to be used by you? Well, that's Can all right. I'm just looking for one. But for me, more than recalling Citizen Kane, the ending to The Third Man seems to have inspired, or at least perhaps been used as a reference point by Wells, when he was staging the climactic sequence in his 1958 masterpiece, Touch of Evil. There, Mike Vargas, played by Charlton Heston, wades through the murky waters along the US-Mexican border to record a confession from the corrupt police captain, Hank Quinlan, played by Wells himself. Look out. Vargas will turn you into one of these here starry-eyed idealists. They're the ones making all the real trouble in the world. Careful, there were some crooks. You can always do something with a crook. You're the one who should be careful, Hank. Uh, with the crooks. What? 
Sometimes you can turn into a crook yourself. Look what happened with Grandy. Partner, nobody ever called me a crook. Quinlan meets the same watery fate as Lyme. But for the third man's finale, Green wanted a happy ending where Holly would step in and rescue Anna from Soviet repatriation. Green wanted to make a point about the peril of those isolated and vulnerable in the East and how the West offered hope and freedom. But Reed rejected the script and opted for something more consistent with Anna's character. Holly has just killed Harry. How could Anna possibly end up with him? So instead, having buried Harry for the second and final time, Anna simply ignores Holly and walks right past him in the cemetery. Inconsolable, she then buries all hope for herself, choosing instead the long walk into the East. Thank you.